All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning, for making this a day of holiness, a day of sanctification, a day of worshiping You by the enabling power of Your Spirit and through the merits of Your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank You for making days like today days to celebrate our victory in Christ Jesus. And thank You for giving us Scripture that assures us of the very meaning of life and the truth about our position in Christ, that we truly are co-victors with Him, and that we ought to rejoice all day, every day, knowing that we've already received eternal life by grace through faith. We pray, Father, for those not able to be with us this morning and for those still struggling with their faith. Please show them the wonders of Your love. We ask that You bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. And may it challenge each of us as we hear Your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. DJ, can you set that so it doesn't come on and off? The Gospel of Salvation and Sanctification, Part 102. Uh, this past week's lessons have been tremendously edifying. Challenging, but edifying, if not eye-opening, to say the least. Here's a nice email I received this past week. Hi, Pastor. I'm doing well. I am extremely grateful for recent convictions. The Spirit is saying we are fat cats, or at least I know I am. The Spirit is challenging me to get out of my comfort zone and remember where my ambassadorship lies and who I belong to. He bought me. I am His and should be living for His purpose and not my own, which is encouraged every day by the world, and I allow myself to easily be sucked right into it, swirling around at the top of the toilet bowl. Yuck. I have been convicted about how self-absorbed I am, and on the flip side, how I yearn to seek out others who are hurting and who don't have His peace. At the same time, He is asking me to get closer to Him so, that, or so He can grow my faith. He is asking me to spend more time in His Word so my heart is right. It is amazing how subtle intentions can be. I know sometimes, and maybe often, I pray for others who are hurting. And sometimes some of my motivation is selfish. I don't want to hurt seeing them hurt. Once again, my heart in need of adjustment from partiality, etc., Sometimes I would love to just fold up shop and move to India or other parts of the world for a reality check and be able to be encouraged by Christians in other parts of the world who live every day clinging to their faith and convictions in the face of their life being threatened. That kind of faith is inspiring, and here I sit as a fat cat. It is a healthy shame-slash-conviction And I look forward to seeing in time what God has in store for me, for my spouse, and for my congregation. Time is so 
damn short. Oh, settle down, Mel. <laughs> Pastor, thank you for your amazing uh, humility to continue to press on to his calling and for listening to him in and out of season. Signed a member of your congregation. So this is, um, first of all, I read that to you because I want all of you to be encouraged that these lessons, albeit, you know, sometimes difficult to swallow, sometimes challenging, um, they're doing their job. Go to Romans 1.12. Romans 1.12, they're doing their job, and you have to remember that always. You have to remember that this ministry is changing lives. And that's something that I'll be totally transparent with you. I need to hear sometimes, honestly. Because from my vantage point, sometimes it doesn't always seem that way. And uh, it's good to hear that encouragement. And it's good for all of us to hear it because it's true. Uh, People's lives are changing uh, in the most meaningful ways. People are being sanctified. And that's what this is all about. And so I want you to be encouraged. Romans 1.12, that is that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. In other words, this is a collective we're in. We're in this together, folks. Um, we're not here to compare and contrast to one another, but in time, sometimes it helps to hear about other people's successes. You know, the Scripture says that. I believe it's in First Timothy. You know, Rejoice when others rejoice. Weep when others weep. That's just a sense of community. That's a very good thing. It doesn't require that we compare ourselves. It just means that we have one heart, you know, one heartbeat with Christ. And that's what I read when I read that email. These have been startling lessons for some, I'm sure. But as far as I can see, the responses in your souls have been consistent with the email I just read to you. This is sanctification. I don't want you to think sanctification is much more or much less than what's going on in your own soul right now. This is sanctification. If he's adding faith to your soul uh, as I speak, if these lessons are sort of stretching you, if even if there's some discomfort involved in the stretching, uh, this is sanctification. It's not even about how many fancy words or original Greek words you can memorize or Scripture memorize. It's about what He's doing in you. How He's changing your heart by giving you faith. So this is sanctification. It doesn't get any better than this. Remember, by definition, up here on the board, sanctification is very simply defined to be made holy to be set apart for God's purposes, to be consecrated in time unto God's will. That's all sanctification is. What does He want for you? He wants you to be set apart for His purposes. The reason He gave us the Bible is because it stands the test of time, and it teaches us what does that actually mean. I mean, do I just go around singing kumbaya, or does he actually have commands for me to enjoy? I know that sounds like an oxymoron, enjoyable commands, right? The adolescents are like, oh, no, no, no. 
but it's the truth. If, as he sanctifies us, the more we fall in love with him, the more we honestly obey him. Not because we feel this sense of force on us, that's always there, but rather that we want to, that he's our dad, Abba Father, right? I mean, he's our dad. We want to be pleasing to our dad, to our Father in heaven. And that's something new for some of us, and for all of us, frankly, coming from darkness to light, to want to be pleasing that way, to want to abide in his commands, so to speak. So sanctification means to be made holy, to be set apart for God's purposes, to be consecrated in time to unto God's will. It's impossible for any of us to be sanctified experientially without learning these tough lessons first. You know, everybody would like me to sort of wax philosophical, you know, and just, I was thinking about this a lot, and I know I'm digressing a little bit, but oh well. Um, one of the most difficult things about being a teacher of the Bible is that at face value, the Bible, you read one scripture that says this, and, it, and then you read another scripture that says the exact opposite. Right? And it's hard to teach because this one might require a certain amount of emphasis, like we've gotten with you know the American mockery, this whole thing. But then you also have to teach with the same boldness and conviction on this side, the thing that might say just the opposite. And I believe that a lot of um, where, where you can go wrong as a teacher, as a ministry, is in just saying, you know, that's just too difficult. I'll just teach this side always, or I'll just teach this side always. And I believe that most people gravitate towards black and white. And they just want the guy behind the pulpit to say, do this. Some of you would actually be more comfortable if I said, go sell all your property and give it to the church. Some of you go, all right, well, now it's over with. Now I know exactly what I need to do. Good. I don't have to discern anything. I don't have to pray. I don't have to do anything. This this bald guy behind the pulpit just said, go do this thing, and I'm just going to go, oh, yo. Right? And as weird as that, or some, the preference is, you know, God loves you and he's going to bless you out. No, I like this one. Prosperity blessing. You know, it's all about prosperity. And then some people go, good, I don't have to actually worry about the other thing. Oh, yeah. Right? You know what I'm saying? And I can be totally self, whatever. But the balance is hard to teach. And what he's saying lately is, don't do that to yourselves. I have to teach hard lessons sometimes, and they're in a vacuum. And without the context of a hundred other lessons, you're going to walk away from here going, oh my word, what am I supposed to do now? So never, I'll get a point on this later, but just think about that um, regarding sanctification, regarding how he goes about doing you, and even the pace that he goes about doing it. In any case, it's impossible for any of us to be sanctified experientially without learning these tough lessons first. In order to sanctify we Americans, the Spirit must ensure that we aren't still somehow clinging to the social standards of our worldly neighbors. That, quote, tearing sound you hear is you being separated from your worldly attachments. It's that simple and it's that necessary. Go to Luke 16, 13. 
Luke 16, 13. And it's not about you losing your home or you losing your bank account. He may ask those things of you, whatever, that's between you and the Lord. It's not about that. It's about your attachment to these things. There's the distinction. It's about your attachment to these things. Luke 16, 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be, dis- be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. What do you think these lessons have been about? You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't have both, in other words. You can't serve both of those things. You can't be attached. You can't love God and wealth. They're mutually exclusive things, you understand? And that's what the Bible says. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Not having it, loving it. It's a difference. On that note, let's quickly review our lessons so we can get headed back towards experiential sanctification proper. Remember our framework. We'll get to that before the end of this morning. These are review principles. Celebrating the wrong kind of wealth. As James pointed out in James 2, 1-9, that was the situation where we would give uh, a person that looks a certain way, that looks wealthy, a seat of uh, nobility at the table, and the, uh, the poor person down at the footstool. As James pointed out in James 2, 1-9, to some, it doesn't matter how a person acquired wealth, but rather that they possess it. The focus is completely perverted. Self-sanctifiers celebrating greater self sanctifiers. And that's easy for us. I mean, who do we pay attention to? If someone was to walk in the door right now and one looks like Pigpen from Peanuts, that was Peanuts, right? And one looked like, I don't know, President Obama or Michelle Obama or whoever, you know, dresses nice, these kind of looks a certain, carries themselves a certain way. Who are we going to pay attention to? Who are most of us going to pay attention to? I don't know. You tell me. What's your natural reaction? That's all he's been saying. Just to clarify the point on the board, two people can have the exact same amount of money in the bank and yet have vastly different amounts of wealth as far as God is concerned. Thursday's message was titled Heart Disease in America because of the following point. It's a pretty sick heart condition when one stands opposed to the Great Commission in favor of gathering unto oneself. A sick heart is a deceived heart. The problem with deception is that, by definition, you don't know when you're in it. Matthew 6.23 But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The Spirit has given us so much to think about on this front. For example... Just in case we buck what he's been trying to teach us lately, just in case we buck it, which would be our natural inclination, I suppose, being Americans, enjoying the so-called blessings of American prosperity. James 4.13-14, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. That's a perspective we ought never forget. Life is short. It seems 
you know, I don't know. Goofy to say it, but the older I get, the faster life seems to go by. And there's a certain expediency to the things that God wants me to do to His glory. And my life is just a vapor. I mean, I know some of you would argue otherwise, but when I'm gone, I mean, some of you might miss me, maybe. But let's face it, in a year or two, you guys would have settled into some other church, listening to some other pastor, and I would just be a memory. I mean, you might have fond memories, maybe not, but I would just be gone. And that would be the end of it. I have no preconceptions about how much man loves me. Nor should you have any preconceptions about how much man loves you. Man, in his flesh, is horrendously fickle. We are just vapors. And then we're gone. Now, that's perspective that we need to cling to. However, when your perspective is bad, you get what the Bible says you will get. A life of experiential darkness. And there's nothing good in darkness, only fear, anxiety, and suffering. So our encouragement lately has been, as stated up here in the board, if you want freedom, drop what you thought you knew about being successful as a person, or mature, or even pious. From most afar from James 1.27, much of your suffering will dissipate once you realize it is self-inflicted as the result of buying a lie. There's a lot of conversations that we have, and if we think back even to the conversations that we've had with others that we've chosen to share, in retrospect, we might say, you know what, that was me. I was complaining about suffering this way or that way, and I was sort of throwing up my arms, and in retrospect, I realized it was my own problem, my own fault. I had bought a lie. I was suffering because I had bought a lie. And thank God He's since delivered me from that lie. And then it's 2020 clarity and hindsight, right? But how many have this heart? James 1.27, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's the heart of Christ right there. That's true religion. That's what it looks like. There are a lot of perversions of it. We have our own concocted in our souls. Now, should all of you run out and visit orphans and widows in distress? No, this is just contextually saying this is what the heart that's oriented to Christ thinks like. This is what they are. If there's someone in need in their periphery, then they address it if possible, if they're moved to do so. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now that's a tall order, but that's what true religion looks like. Even after these wonderfully placed lessons have been inserted into our souls, some of you will resist the good work He's trying to complete in you. To your own disadvantage, nonetheless. Since God works all things together for good to those who love Him, We may feel resistance, but in humility, we can stick it out. We can press on, as Paul wrote. So concentrate. Again, I'm just reviewing. I'm going somewhat quickly. On faith. Sometimes God will give faith to the reluctant. 
Now, that's me speaking as a man. Sometimes God will give faith to the reluctant. In other words, our flesh may not want more of Christ's heart on something because it knows that we become responsible to God on that subject. Just think about the last week's lessons on being American and the things that we favor as Americans. I mean, if that didn't hit you square between the eyes, I'm not sure what would, honestly. And now you're responsible for it. Now you've seen the light. And now you're responsible to it. Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much is required. And some people say, "Ah, I don't want that kind of faith because that would require me to actually follow convictions from God the Holy Spirit. That would actually require me to give up part of my self-life for others. Oh, wow, imagine that. Didn't Christ say something like that? So, following the heart-wrenching realities the Spirit has pointed out to this congregation, and that's another thing I'd like to say as your shepherd, is that (laughs) these lessons have been for you. So be very careful. Be very, very careful how you bring them out, if you bring them out. Because there's a whole context. We're in part 102 of this series. There's a reason why we haven't, you know, just totally broken off into some other area of theology. There's a whole context here, so just be very careful when you're sharing these things. My personal belief is that these things, even though we talk about community issues like being American, they're very personal. They're meant for you as individuals, not to go out and tell the world, oh, well, Pastor Ed said America stinks. And American, you know, social life is horrible and blah, blah. And they're going to be like, what are you, what? What's he teaching over there? No, this is within a context. This is against all the emphasis on the Great Commission and the Gospel. And then, so there's this Great Commission, this huge, massive calling, the purpose that we're here, the reason we're left here even. And then there's the antithesis of it, which is the American life and gather unto oneself and build bigger barns and this kind of a thing. And so the Spirit just said, look at these two things. Where do you sit here? Where's your heart on the matter? That's all he's been saying. So this congregation, but one came on the coattails of the other, right? So just be careful. So with all that said, following those realities, he gave us a few balance statements just to ensure we aren't getting lopsided so friendly reminder never take a lesson or two or three even out of context if it stings good it meant to sting but don't lose your marbles never take a lesson or two out of context never react so viscerally to a lesson such that you are completely unnerved or thrown off. That shouldn't happen, folks. It's one thing to get snapped between the eyes. And you should listen to what the Spirit's saying. But that's just a wake-up call. And then he says, you see where I want to take you? You see where this is ending up? This is my, the end goal for you is this thing over here, and you're like way over here right now. And the, the degree that there's that separation, that's the degree it stings. Fine. You're here. This is where I want to take you. Boy, it hurts knowing that. No kidding. Well, then let's get some work done. It doesn't mean you try to leapfrog the whole thing, sell all your possessions, go, you know, whatever. That's not what he's saying. 
He's saying this is the reality, though, about your heart and mine. So never react so viscerally to a lesson such that you are completely unnerved or thrown off. Sanctification takes time. Knee-jerk reactions are often the cause for further angst. That doesn't help. If you're now now all balled up in the corner because you're being religious about things, now he's got two problems to work out in you. Now he has to deliver you from religion and the original thing. (laughs) So don't do that either. So knee-jerk reactions are often the cause for further angst, which isn't the Spirit's intention. Conviction is necessary, however, religious fear isn't. In other words, it's one thing to say, I get it. I get it. I'm here. This is where perfect sanctification is. This is none of us get there perfectly in time anyways. But I get it. I see it. I see there's a huge chasm between these things. There's a lot of work to be done. But he'll give me the faith. He'll get it done. There's a big difference between that and going, uh-oh, look at how big this thing is. Oh, my God, I've got to go do something. Do, do, do something and become religious about it. Because the Bible also says that if you do things in a, with the wrong motivation, it's what? Wood, hay, and straw. And it goes, poof. You're better off not even doing it. So the motivation has to be there. And just reflecting, I can tell you with complete confidence that every time he has me teach a tough lesson, or lessons like he has been, at least one of you will stumble. At least one of you will stumble. It's just the way it goes. And I believe it's primarily because of the point on the board. That people take lessons in vacuums, and they're looking for that, you know, just like that, um, I hate to say it this way, and I don't mean to offend anybody who does take pharmaceutical pills, but, you know, everybody's looking for the pill. Man, I'm so, oh my God, I got so convicted, that must be the pill for my life. (laughs) And you're off and running, and now the Spirit's got to deal with a train wreck months later, because you did it out of religious motivation instead of actual motivation. With that said, here are the balance statements. Wealth isn't the issue, it's what we think about said wealth. For example, God may rightly ask one person to store up finances in order to someday support a mission of his, and that is totally righteous. But only for the person who has a godly heart concerning finances. For example, this new live solution, one person is pretty much paying for it. And it's going to be at least 1000 bucks, possibly 1500 bucks. Oh, that person didn't have money to spend, I guess what? You guys don't get a live solution, do you? But that's the way it goes. That's the point. That he uses everybody in different ways. Since Acts 2 came up in our studies, where the new converts were led by the Spirit to sell their possessions and give to the needy, the Spirit provided us with this balance statement. Not every believer is called to sell everything at once, since some things used by God for His glory cost more than others, implies some save to be used later. If everyone's broke, He wouldn't be able to use us the way He desires. That's just the way it goes. So the point that He's been saying now for years is very simple. Context is key. Context is key. Your life has context. Nobody's life is exactly the same. For example, regarding finances even. Some of you are the 
the people who are reactive daily to needs. Hey, here's 20 bucks, here's 100 bucks, here's 50 bucks, here's $10, here's a quarter, I don't know, right? And you really have nothing stored up, fine. Others have big callings on their lives. Go to 1 Corinthians 12.4, just to drive this point home. 1 Corinthians 12.4. Attitude is everything. First Corinthians twelve four. <clears throat> and I personally don't want to get in the way of you and your convictions with the Spirit about your finances. I don't want to be that person who tries to shame you into I don't know giving or whatever. That's not my job. My job. I'll teach hard. Because that's what Scripture says. It's like that example. I'll teach when I need to teach about a certain subject. And if Americans are predominantly self-absorbed money mongers and idolaters, then I'm going to teach that. And if you're an American and you, I see you the way you are, then I'm going to tell you this is the way you are too. But I'm not trying to shame you into being like Acts 2 individuals, out of context. I don't want that either. I'm just trying to say, you know, what are we doing here? Call a spade a spade, right? And then it's up between you and the Lord. So don't misinterpret my intentions up here. 1 Corinthians 12.4 Now there are a varieties, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Jump to verse 11. Verse 11 But one in the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Some of you have a heart for one thing. Some of you have a heart for another thing. That's between you and the Lord. Go to verse 20. But here's what we do know in verse 20. We know that we, there are many members, but one body. Not everyone's an eye, not everyone's an ear, not everyone's a hand, etc., etc. I'm the ass, obviously. Hey, not many wise, not many noble. Just saying. On that note, balance statement. <clears throat> Why was that so funny, by the way? Just saying. <laughs> God's trying to get us to the kingdom of heaven. When I say get us, I mean get us into the reality, living the gospel reality, living in the kingdom of heaven right now. The kingdom of heaven is not like, a, it's not like we're going to go travel over the hill and, oh, the kingdom of heaven is over there. No, the kingdom of heaven exists in each of us. And he's trying to get us to abide in it. He's trying to get us to live there with that mindset. So that's a reality available to every believer right now. After, though, we got, he's got to get us there first. That's the point. He's got to get us there. After we are there, then he can direct our earnings. And these are all, they become second things. That's the whole point. He can then direct our earnings and our expenditures to accomplish his will. Context is key. So, before you run out and become religious, get your perspective straight and your priorities will soon follow. For example, when you hear about disciples in the early church being led to sell their possessions and give to the poor, should you have a knee-jerk reaction and do the same? No, of course not. Of course not. How about closer to home? And I say this in humility, it's just the example he wants me to give you. When you hear about your pastor planning a trip to India next May, 
because the Spirit's convicting him personally to do so, does that mean you ought to pack up and go too? Of course not. Your life has context, just like the lives of every person you've ever read about in the Bible. They all had a context. We're not members of the early church. There was a different situation going on there. We are, though, to be like Christ. We ought to share His heart. But we aren't called to be hanging on His cross, are we? I mean, wouldn't that just be the most extreme case? Yeah, but that's silliness. So there's the distinction between being like Him and sharing His heart on whatever the situation calls for. So that's perspective. Perspective is key. You'll never find it if you don't first have context. Think of a rose bush. Right? Sun comes and you get roses on this side and it's kind of thorny on this side. But God might say in your life you're going to be on the thorn side and in your life you're going to be on the rosy side. What's your perspective? Same rose bush, two completely different perspectives. Well, who placed you there? Many members, one body. We're still part of the same body looking at the same rose bush. But different perspectives, right? So it really does matter if you start walking over and go, well, I want to stand on the rose side. Well, then how are you going to do His will if you're out of, or you're disjointed in the body? If you're supposed to be an eye and you're trying to be an ear because you like, quote-unquote, like the perspective this person has instead of this person, well, what, what are you doing? You, your, your, your context is wrong. Your context is over here on the thorny side, maybe. Therefore, your perspective is right. You get it? God puts you in a certain life, with certain family, and jobs, and friends, and church, and pastors. All this thing is part of it. And you have a context. It's not until you get the context right that you get your perspective right. Too many people try to borrow other people's context. That's a mistake. They read something in the Bible. They're like, I want to be like Paul. But you're not Paul. I want to be like the Acts 2 people. But you're not Acts 2 people. I want to be like so-and-so. But you're not so-and-so. You're you. So get the context straight in your life, first of all. And then you'll get your perspective. Amen? Amen. All right. A perfect example of this is the parable of the rich man and his barns up here on the board. Luke 12, 21. So is the man who stores up treasure for himself. That's the context. Context is key. Jesus was teaching a parable in context. Saying this guy has a problem because his his heart, his treasure is where his heart is, and his heart is with his possessions. You know, like most Americans. So the context was that he was storing up treasure for himself. That's a heart issue. Context is key. For himself implies poor motivation in context in this particular parable and is not rich toward God. That's why, because his motivation was bad. As I've taught you, every parable in the Bible has a surrounding context to it. Getting tired of that word yet? Context. Context. (laughs) Anthony. Context. All right, here's another balanced statement. Please do not make the grave mistake of assuming that everyone who, quote, stores up treasures is doing so, quote, for himself, and therefore disqualifying themselves somehow as being, quote, rich toward God. Don't do that. Who are you to judge? You have no idea, no idea what's going on in another person's soul. No idea what he might be doing 
That's a private matter between them. If they're, if they're failing, even if they're failing, that's still between them. Even if they're following him, that's still between them. It's not your business. A person may be both rich by world standards and rich by God's. Wealth is a heart issue through and through. For more perspective, just on the flip side, just to put things in their proper place, how about in some cultures asceticism is highly esteemed? That means to go completely without. Even if the motivation is altogether wrong, suppose they're being religious. This too is ungodly then. This may be less common in America, for example, but it's no less evil than esteeming the rich for being rich. Esteem ought never be derived from any world scale of values. That's the point. And that's really the heart of the balance statements. Esteem ought never be derived from any world scale of values. So we can't be jackasses like the Pharisees who say, look how spiritual we are, and they actually tied spirituality with wealth. And we can't be jackasses like the ascetics and say, look how spiritual we are because we go without. That's esteeming the wrong things. You go with what the Spirit wants you to go with. And when He reveals to you by faith, by grace, right? Then that's when you do it, whatever He wants you to do. But he teaches these things ahead of time so that when he does ask you, just for example, when he does ask you to downgrade your $60,000 vehicle to a $30,000 one, let's say, everybody's like, that doesn't suit me. Well, you didn't get the point. And when he, when he does that, I'm just talking about Jim Merchant, right? When he does that, you just, yeah. When he does that, you're supposed to say, okay. That's it. That's what he's been teaching you. Okay. But until he does it, don't do it. That, my friends, is truth, and the truth will set you free. John 8.32, And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The truth is not merely knowledge. The truth is all that the Word says, including the commands to obey, to go evangelize, etc., whatever it may be. The truth includes the promises of blessings when we do, not merely hear. Like I just said, James 1.22. If you're convicted to do something, then do it. That's where freedom lies. The perspective we ended with on Thursday was very simple. And if we're honest with ourselves, undeniable. The gospel perspective. There's no greater, quote, doing than to win a soul. A 75-year existence on earth, even if every moment is spent suffering, is well worth an exchange for a single soul being granted eternal life. Is that true? Yeah. But you'd think it wasn't the way we are like brats. Why hasn't God blessed me? Well, maybe it's supposed to be a pauper. Maybe you're supposed to end up destitute in a corner somewhere so that the other person that it happened to, who might be unsaved, can relate to you. You know, when you're both 75 in an old folks' home and just looking at each other. What's up, Philly? What's up, Sam? Let me tell you about the gospel. You mean that happened to you? 
Yeah, that happened to me. I had it all. I had the world by the, the horns, and I lost it all. Or I gave it all away. And here I am, busted. But I'm with you, Philly. Want to hear the gospel? Yeah, I, I kind of trust you on this. Been there, done that. Maybe that's your life. Maybe that's your life, so stop complaining about what he's asking you to do. Get your perspective right. Get your context right. The great context, first of all, is this. We all have this, right? One rose bush. The gospel perspective. There's no greater doing than to win a soul. A 75-year existence on earth, even if every moment is spent suffering, is well worth an exchange for a single soul being granted eternal life. Some of us may not possess the faith yet to go out and win souls, strictly speaking, and that's okay but we must wait on God's timing, which relates to another point. Two Thursdays ago, the Spirit closed with a very interesting thing to think about up here on the board on spreading the gospel. And this is in of itself another balance statement, as if to say, hey, listen, just because the greatest thing you can do is win a soul, is to bring the gospel out to a lost and dying world, doesn't mean that if you're not ready to do that yet, that you should just run out there and do it anyways and butcher the thing. I don't know. Do you understand what I'm saying? These are all related concepts. He says one thing, and he says it hard, and he says, do this thing. You know, do this thing. At the beginning of the series, I think about that. How much did he say, Make sure you're saved. Make sure you understand the gospel. Make sure your, your family and your friends and the ones you've been giving little coins to are actually saved. They actually understand the gospel. That they're not just, just mentally assenting to this thing. And they're not actually saved. And you're just adding to the problem by saying, oh, you're totally saved. You're totally saved. Let's just go have a beer. What did he say? That had context. Do you understand why? Because there are a lot of people out there are you not convinced of it? They say they're Christians, but aren't even saved. Anybody doubt that by now? And by the way, if you don't believe it happens now, which is you're a fool, it happened in the Bible, and we saw it time and time again. We know that that person exists, a professing Christian. We know they exist even in the churches. I had multiple people, I would never name names, Multiple people in this congregation tell me they just got saved. And these aren't people who came here off the street. These are people I've been teaching and other people have been teaching for years. And they just got saved. So you tell me all those hard lessons weren't specifically for multiple people in our own congregation you tell me all the hard lessons on the American mockery wasn't for certain people in our own congregation, if not all of us. Maybe you weren't the one that got saved. Maybe it's your uncle, or your father, or your mother, or your children, or somebody you've been saying, oh, you're totally good. Believe these facts right here about Jesus, you're good. Maybe it's not you personally, but maybe it's somebody in your periphery. You get it? This is, these are the, whenever you have a hard lesson, it goes back to that balance statement earlier. Whenever we have a hard lesson, just make sure you get the context of it right. Don't lose your marbles. Understand what he's saying in that time, in that moment. Great commission. 
Oh my God, why are we even sitting here? Why aren't we outside with signs? John 3.16! Why are we not running around? Because life has context. Some of you aren't ready yet. Some of you are just getting it now. So there's such a thing as unmotivated evangelism. Do you think it's possible that those who remain unmotivated lack the faith to go out? Matthew 20, 18-20. Because the actual content of their message is wrong. Or minimally incomplete. I think about whole churches that have very little motivation whatsoever to go out. Oh, they'll sit there on their ivory tower like this and go, well, if you come to me, I will pontificate to you about the gospel. But you've got to come through my front pearly gate and you've got to get, drive a little ways and look at all the plants that I've done and all the doctrinal stuff that I've put up. And then when you get to me, I will grace you out with the gospel. But I'll just sit here in my little velvet robe and wait for you to come to me. That's called passive evangelism. That's nowhere in the Bible. It may happen that you might, someone might come to you, but that's not the activity that I read about in the Bible. It's not what I saw in Jesus. It's not what I saw in the disciples. It's not what I saw in the apostles. It's not what I see in anybody who's doing their job now regarding the Great Commission. I don't see that at all. But if you don't have the gospel right, maybe he's not going to give you the faith to go out, to step out. Because it's always step out by what? Faith. And if you have faith in your own abilities instead of faith given to you by God, you're going to go out with the wrong motivation. Or maybe no motivation at all. And you'll just sit there. <laughs> God won't motivate a person to spread a false gospel, I can tell you that. So if your gospel is mangled or weak or watered down, Take a look at the people around you. Seriously. Disclaimer. This isn't the only reason why someone would be unmotivated. So don't go making doctrinal stances on these things. These are things that tease out the truth in us. What we do know, though, from Scripture is this. A lack of faith never works. A lack of faith never works. Never does a good work. And that's a good thing for you to realize. It's a good thing for you to swallow. And say, I don't know, if I'm not motivated, maybe he hasn't given me the faith yet. Maybe he's still trying to teach me a few things here and there before he sends me out a certain way. I don't know. Acts 19.13-16, Matthew 17.15-20, Luke 16.31. A perfect example of this is found in a passage that makes... It's, this makes me laugh every time I read it. It's, to me, it's one of the funniest passages in Scripture. Now, you may... You may Think less of me afterwards. I don't care. But every time I read this, it makes me laugh. Go to Acts 19.13. Acts 19.13. Oh, this just, I, just, I just visualize this and I, I'm in hysterics. Because it's, like it's like the futility of the idiot. Right? And then they get what they deserve. And it's not just like on the inside. It's actually like public. Like in the funniest way. Acts 19.13. But also, some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempting to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, so these are fakes, phonies in other words, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? 
Right? It's kind of like, he's like, what? Who are you guys? And demons are powerful, right? So he's like, who are you? Phonies, little plays, like posers. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Come on. How funny is that scene? Right? Hey, we're going to go in there, we're going to exercise this demon. They come out, wow, naked, and all beat up. One guy. I don't know. I told you. I got problems. <laughs> a lack of faith never works. And that's exactly what you just saw. Let's go exercise this demon. But we don't have any real faith. So he shreds them up and sends them on their way. What a scene. Go to Matthew 17, 15. Matthew 17, 15. A lack of faith never works. This isn't just for unbelievers, folks. A lack of faith in you. A lack of faith in you won't work either. And this is a good lesson as to all these hard lessons that he's been giving us. Saying, but if you lack the faith, don't do it. Just remember, that's my ultimate will for you. Some of you listening to the pastor's voice may be able to do those things. Some of you might be called out. Johnny on the spot. Oh, I forgot. I'm going to go out now. I have the faith to do it. I've just been selfish or something. This kind of a thing. But some of you won't. And that's okay. Lord, Matthew 17, 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? And here it is. These are the disciples, by the way. And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. That's the problem. Faith works, my friends, but you've got to have it, right? We just saw some people beat up and made nude and run away because they didn't have any. But we also see a situation here where his own disciples had little faith and they couldn't drive out this particular demon. But truly I say to you, if you have the faith, have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. See, faith doesn't have any limitations. We do. We may not have it, therefore we don't have the ability to move a mountain. If God wanted you to move a mountain, and He needed to prove something to you, and you had the faith, it would move. That's what He's saying. Faith does, I mean, come on. This is the creator who created the world. If he wants to move a mountain, he can move a mountain. If that's his will and you are completely oriented to it. And where faith matters more than anywhere, though, is with the gospel. Where we see the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Hades. I'm not going to read it all. Go to Luke 16.31. I certainly would invite you to read uh, the preceding verses in Luke 16, but go to Luke 16, 31. This has everything to do with the gospel, my friends. Had a wonderful conversation with another pastor the other day, and uh, we were just talking about how wonderful, how beautiful it is to realize that the gospel has never changed. That's, it never has changed. That's the whole, people who get on these weird kicks of, oh, the gospel is different in the Old Testament. No, it wasn't. It's always been faith alone and Christ alone. 
They wouldn't have called him Jesus because he wasn't born yet, but it was always faith in the Messiah. He was just coming. The gospel's been the same. So when we read stuff like this, Luke 16, 31, but he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Remember what Jesus said? He said, look, he goes, the, your, the Old Testament speaks about me. You know, Abraham looked forward to me. He was excited about me. So Old Testament, New Testament, Scripture, the gospel is always the same. And it's the Word of God that imparts. Think of, all right, let me keep going with Scripture then. A person must have faith in the Word of God. Okay? And that goes for all of you who are convicted now to go out and evangelize. You better have some Scripture with you. You better have something of scriptural value, either behind you or with you. Somehow, it's the Word that's got to get to this person's soul. The same was true even when the canon of Scripture wasn't completed as we know it. The Gospel has never changed. Scripture assures us of this fact. I'm going to borrow from MacArthur on this one. Luke 16, 31 This speaks powerfully to the singular sufficiency of Scripture to overcome unbelief. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. That's Romans 1.16. Since unbelief is at heart a moral rather than an intellectual problem, no amount of evidences will ever turn unbelief to faith. In other words, that throws out all the watered-down, easy-believism gospels, right? Just believe these facts about Jesus. But we also know that even the demons believe and shudder, so it's not like facts are going to do it. There has to be some heart issue here. No amount of evidences, facts in other words, will ever turn unbelief to faith. But the revealed Word of God has inherent power to do so. John 6.63, Hebrews 4.12, James 1.18, 1 Peter 1.23. Let's consider the scripture that MacArthur quotes here. Go to John 6. 63, John 6, 63, but the revealed Word of God has inherent power to do so. <clears throat> and don't get tangled up into the personalities of, of the Godhead, this kind of a thing. The Word was God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God, therefore the Holy Spirit speaks and is the Word in a sense. God the Father gave us the word. Don't get tangled up in that stuff. John 6.63 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. That's a reference to the word of God. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. Go to Hebrews 4.12 Hebrews 4.12 This is good perspective for us, too, because, you know, maybe you have a frustrating day. Maybe something's bothering you. Maybe your relative still isn't coming around, and you have to say to yourself, jeez, you know, I gave him the word, and if the word can't do it, I'm certainly not going to. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Go to James 1.18. James 
This is the Word of God, my friends. The revealed Word of God has inherent power to do this thing, to turn, to turn unbelief to faith. James 1.18 In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth, so that we would be a kind of firstfruits among His creatures. By the Word of truth, by the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of truth. That's the Word of God. And then go to 1 Peter 1.23. 1 Peter 1.23 These are pearls, folks. I hope you're getting them. I hope you realize what he's doing in your soul. 1 Peter 1.23 For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. You have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Again, the point on the board, but the revealed Word of God has inherent power to do so, to turn unbelief to faith. So we are getting back to our formal framework now. I guess at some point we'd have to after 100 plus lessons. As we race back up out of the mine shaft, and when I say that, if you're not familiar with my language, I just think of us as there's big picture items and then we go and you go deeper and deeper and we go down into the, and then we come back out and we get pick up with the big picture again. So I always think we're like a mine shaft. We're digging for gold, you know. But as we come back out of that mine shaft, here are a few principles we might quote see inscribed on the walls. Knowing is not living. Knowing is not living. This has been a common theme in our studies for years now, as has the practical side of that statement, which is this. And again, these are all points of review. We're just coming out, saying, look, remember this on the way out? Knowing is not living. Arrogant people lack faith in God. Arrogant people lack faith. James 1, 7 to 8, For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Practically speaking, and this was from a few lessons back, again, we're emerging from our current deep dive, God demands our humility. Arrogance cannot deliver you, only God can, leaving you with a single option, humility. A saved, delivered person is an obedient one. An obedient person enjoys God's peace in time. A disobedient one doesn't. Almost out of the mind shaft, just a little more perspective to take with us. On sanctification, up here in the board, living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor's stand than trying to climb up. Go to 1 John 5.4. 1 John 5.4, living the spiritual life in Christ, in the new creature, is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor stand than trying to climb up. First John 5.4 For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What? 
our faith. See that? You don't, you don't get that thing. You don't get that sense of being victorious in Christ Jesus unless you have what? Faith. Again, living the spiritual life in Christ and the new creature is more like avoiding being dragged off the victor's stand than trying to climb up. You're already made a victor. You just got to live it. You got to have that faith to believe it. Therefore, when we consider the good work, the very active work of the Spirit in our lives, that is sanctification, we mustn't lose this perspective. Again, point of review. Your experiential sanctification. That's where we're at, after all. We're coming out of the mind shaft. We're getting back to experiential sanctification proper. God looks forward to sanctifying you. He's going to put you in unique situations where only you can bring glory to Him. I talked about five minutes off the cuff earlier on this, right? That your life has context. And you have to find that context. If you want... Perspective? Everybody, does anybody here not want perspective? Does anybody here not want godly perspective? I mean, there's nothing more edifying, nothing more freeing than knowing that you're right with God, right? Well, you're never going to find it if you don't understand what context is. If you don't accept that God made you just the way He made you. Right? Physically, emotionally, you name it. Geographically, all those things were in place for your life. And he's going to sanctify you in that life. You. So stop trying to be like everybody else. Stop buying the lie about American. Or you're a failure unless you're, you know, you have a, at least a house with a picket fence and two and a half kids, whatever that means, and two dogs and three cats and, you know, uh, a, a, a tennis court in the back, maybe a boat. Uh, I don't know. Then it gets keeps going, right? Six acres. No, 20 acres. No, 100 acres of land. And huge barns, you know. You know, this. No, maybe you're supposed to live in a hovel somewhere. Maybe you're supposed to have a very delicate financial situation. Maybe you are the person that lives hand to mouth. I don't know. What do you want me to say? All I know is he put you there, right? It wasn't my doings. He put you in that situation. Why? Because he's perfect. All we have to do is accept that he's doing this thing for us. The reality of living by faith has never been more important than this moment. Think about that. The reality of living by faith has never been more important to you than this moment right now. So some of you need to get out of your own way and say, Oh, such a failure, and I'm just, I'm just going to give up because I stink at this. Stop. Stop. The reality of living by faith has never been more important than this moment right now. And then this one. That one's gone. Okay, now this one. You get it? Living for the moment, like right now. The future doesn't exist. So that's a lie. Oh, I've got to live for the future. No, your future is already secured in heaven. You've got eternal life, so what are you worried about? The future doesn't exist yet. Does it? No. The past you can't control. So what are you left with? Right now. So in, technically that's true always. Living by faith is really what matters right now. So the reality of living by faith has never been more important than this moment right now. 
as you prepare to go back out into the world. And it's never been more important than right now that you be humble about what the Spirit's been saying to you from this pulpit. You may not understand it all, and some of you might feel a sense of confusion about being pushed out by faith. But consider Abraham when God said, Go, I'll tell you later about my plans for you. He didn't know where God was nudging him, did he? How about Noah? How would you like to be the guy? Okay, I want you to build an ark. All I can think is Bill Cosby, remember? Right. Go to Hebrews 11.7. I know he's not popular now. Stop being so judgmental. Hebrews 11.7. How about Noah then? Did he know everything? I don't think so. By faith, though, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which, he condemned, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Could Noah have known all that was about to befall the earth? Not completely, but by faith, in the right moment, he obeyed God. Noah's life had context. And when God called him, he did it. When God called him, he did it. Now he's in the hall of fame, of faith, Hebrews 11. So the point is, when God calls you, knowing all the facts and not dodging any of the stuff about your life, you know, in the moment, are you going to obey God? That's between you and Him. Or how many of you women out there, if you were almost 100 years old, would believe that you could bear a child. Yet Sarah believed by faith in the moment when it mattered most. Go to Hebrews 11.11. Hebrews 11.11. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Doesn't make sense, but with God all things are possible. The Spirit's nudging you in the now, in this moment. For there's never been another moment like this one, my friends. And it'll be the same tomorrow and the day after that. As Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes 3.1, there is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. But I don't know what that timing looks like for you. I only know what it is for me. But I do know that there is an appointed time for everything. Therefore, each and every circumstance requires a unique evaluation. Discernment is a function of wisdom, wisdom given by God. But you can't have wisdom if you don't have context. You can't have wisdom then if you don't have perspective. You see how these things go? You've got to get right in your own life. A lot of you are still kicking against the goad, so to speak. Kicking against the neck. Remember Sue Clio? Kicking against the net. Uh, in the net, and you're, you're getting worse. Your life's getting harder. You might even be still coming to church, and your life's getting harder because you're kicking harder. And, and he tries to convict you on things that would set you totally free, but instead of actually having the humility to, to, to accept them, you resist them. Like Andrea. That's why she's choking. She can't even take it. She's like, oh, God, I gotta get out of here. 
<laughs> you all right, sweetie? Let's all look at Andrea. <laughs> right? Anyways, each and every circumstance requires a unique evaluation. Discernment is a function of wisdom given by God. You may have your eyes on the wrong things. Have you ever thought about that? Instead of trying to force God into your little box, because your context is wrong, you're supposed to be here on the rose bush, but you're over here, and you say, God, you come, you come to me. I want you to, to come inside my little box. He goes, you don't get to do that. He says, you're supposed to be over here in the first place. It isn't until you're over here and you find your own context and your own life that I'll give you the right perspective. And then once you have perspective, then maybe I'll give you some wisdom. But how are you going to have wisdom if you're in the wrong place? How do you have wisdom if you're chasing after the Joneses all the time? How are you going to have any wisdom on life? You're just going to be sitting there going, ah, and you're focused on all the wrong things. And because you're focused on all the wrong things, you don't have any freedom. You're like, man, I keep going to church, but nothing's happening. That's because possibly you have the wrong perspective because you have the wrong context about your life. You read one thing in the Bible, like, that's me. Acts 2, that's me. Going to sell everything. Then you're over there like two months later, go, what the heck did I just do? (laughs) Where are all the blessings? They're not there because that was wood, hay, and straw. Or I just read about Paul. You know, I got to go get myself beat up and almost drowned or something. I'm going to give the gospel down in the hood or something and to people really say, I don't want it. I just keep giving it to them. They beat me up. And I'm like, I'm like Paul. And you end up in the hospital going, what happened? Where's all the peace? It's not yours because wood, hay, and straw. So get your own life straight, please. We don't have these examples in the Bible so that we can mimic people. It says imitate my faith. The pastor's faith says imitate my faith. Don't, don't be like me, though. You don't want my life. Trust me. You don't want to be me. Trust me. And I don't want to be you. So it's not that way either. You know what I'm saying? But imitate a person that has faith. Imitate the faith then. Find your, I'm telling you, find your own context. Any freedom I've ever enjoyed is because I actually understand what he actually wants to do with me. Anyways, you may have your eyes on the wrong things, hence your confusion. But in the light, the word is light, God is light, Jesus Christ is light. In the light, we see things clearly. Maybe you're plagued with taking offense with the communicator before you. If so, please stop it. For I speak to you all out of love and grace for your profit. Because there is indeed a time for everything. Sometimes a teacher must use fleshly arguments in order to contend with opposing fleshly thinking even. Since in order to, quote, pluck a person from ungodliness, the teacher must, quote, reach into the fire. As much as it may be distasteful to the teacher and offensive to the student, he realizes that he must do that thing to deliver. Galatians 4.19, his disciple, 2 Corinthians 11. My job is to keep reintroducing you to the Lord and Savior and to his precious gospel. Up here on the board, there comes a time that a person must completely bind themselves to the Lord. And in doing so, in humility, they are binding themselves to the authority even in their lives. These are all things that we've scribed on the wall, right? We've been going down this deep dive We went right through authority orientation at the very beginning of this particular journey. Don't forget it. We're coming back out. Don't forget authority orientation. So these few couple of weeks, 
or these couple of weeks or these few weeks of lessons have been interesting because regardless of the topic, the concept of authority orientation has always laced it up. And just reflecting again on things we've learned, we're all in positions of authority and we're all in positions of submission. As I've taught you in the past on the subject of authority orientation to truly authority to the truly authority oriented, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter which role they are playing. They honor the Lord's delegation of authority and his divinely ordained chain of command, regardless of their personal feelings on the subject. It doesn't matter. James 5.9, Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. One last passage in closing as food for thought. Go to Hebrews 12.14. Although I might have lied, it may not be our last passage. Is lying bad? Judges. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will, be, will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards... And think about this, now is the time, time is of the essence. Even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. God gives grace to who? The humble. The humble are authority-oriented, and they receive faith by grace, faith that delivers them. If you're arrogant, the Word of God says that you, He won't give you grace. He's opposed to the arrogant. Scripture says that. And if that's the case, then you must swallow the following principle whole up here in the board. You have to make the distinction between your desires and your abilities. You may desire something with, I'm supposed to say with, with all your heart, speaking as a man, but until God gives you the appropriate measure of it, it isn't yours. At best, it's a shadow, but most likely a counterfeit. In other words, listen, if you don't have the faith, don't try to manufacture it. Don't be a poser. Don't pretend. Unless you get stripped and you get sent out in the street naked, right? Don't be a poser. He really doesn't do that. You have to make the distinction between your desires and your abilities. That's an important thing for you to think about. You may want to have all the faith in the world, but you may not have the ability yet. There may be other areas of your life that he's trying to work through. He's like, I can't have you going out there, you know, evangelizing every day proper, you know, handing out tracts or something like Scotty does. This kind of, I can't have you doing that yet because you don't even know the context of your own life yet. You don't have the right perspective yet. You, you might do more damage than good. Right? So there's a time for everything. So we are now heading back to closure on this wonderful series titled The Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification. Quickly, we all know about this. We went through salvation perspectives 
The whole idea is that when we're sanctified, our perspective becomes more and more like God's. We see things from a big picture perspective. God saves. Doesn't matter what phase or tense we're talking about, God saves. Penalty, power, presence of sin, done. Same thing with uh, sanctification. Our, the idea is that we are sanctified. We are going to be set apart for Him. He promises it if we're saved, positionally, experientially, ultimately. So, we finally made it back to our primary framework. And my prayer all along for all of you is that you haven't lost this big picture perspective at any point in our studies. If you're still working through all the details, then be gracious to yourself. Be patient. Sanctification takes time. The Greek word Sophia, which is wisdom, takes time, my friends. It takes time. Most of us don't even know the context of our own lives. Let's face it. Most of us are still confused. Well, where am I supposed to be? And you're unsettled. And therefore, you know, you ever like wiggle back and forth? You can't see straight, right? Try it. Go ahead, do it. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can't see straight? Where's your perspective? Have you ever been drunk? I've never been, because I'm goody two-shoes. Have <laughs> you ever been drunk and your eyes go like this? That's what I'm trying to describe. How are you going to have any perspective on life? How are you going to have any wisdom about what's going on in your periphery if you can't see straight? It takes time. And the Spirit's been pointing out for quite some time now up here on the board, there's just some forms of wisdom that cannot be attained without our stepping out into the fray by faith. You can come to class all you want, but if what you learn, literally, you leave at the door stoop, the step out there, and then you go back to your own life, you might as well just hang up your spurs. This stuff is supposed to be become you. You don't come to church just for the sake of coming to church. You don't learn in here, get all jazzed up in here, and then walk out and go right back to your old life. At least not up here, right? This is meant to do something. So there's just some forms of wisdom that cannot be attained without our stepping out into the fray by faith. Go quickly to 1 Corinthians 10.13. If you do what's on the board and your faith is a little shaken, just remember these last two passages. I promise this is it. It's not, you know what it is? It's not a perfect science. I think some people would like for it to be a perfect science. That's the pill analogy, right? They would like to be able to just go to church, and then the pastor is so phenomenal that he just gives you this one pearl of wisdom. And all of a sudden you're like, oh my God! All this time, all I needed was that little piece of wisdom. My whole life has changed. I'm dying. Oh, this is incredible. Everybody wants that. But that's not how it works. It's not how it works. So don't look for the, you know, don't look for the pill. I don't work for uh, Pfizer, right? I don't have a spiritual pill that I can just toss to you and say, take that and everything's going to be dandy. It doesn't work that way. So, knowing that, if you're a little shaken and, you know, some of this stuff has sort of upset the apple cart a little bit, that's good because he does that for us as a favor. So stop it. Stop putting yourself on cruise control as the average American because you're seeping right in. You're the toilet bowl, right? Ooh, yeah, the lazy man's river. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Know this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, 
who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. God's not going to ask you to do something that you're not capable of doing. He's not going to put something in your path that He knows is going to tempt you if you, don't, if you don't have the faith to be able to get over it. Now, you can take yourself completely out of His plan, out of everything, and sort of come in cockeyed. I think of the rose bush again. Say, where are the promises of God? Why am I, why do I keep failing? Because you're not actually where you're supposed to be. Look, if you're supposed to be playing right field and you're at shortstop, and the batters keep hitting in right field because they know better, you know, like Satan would. What do you expect? Of course they're going to score runs on you. You're out of position. Get in position. But I don't want to play right field. That's like the worst place of all. It's like you sit out there and pick daisies. Maybe because you stink. Maybe you'd be playing shortstop if you actually were better. If you actually listened to the coach. How about that? Oh, Go to Matthew 21, 18. <laughs> it's not rocket science, right? But that's how we act towards God. We're like, but I want to play shortstop. Yeah, everybody wants to play shortstop. But I want to play. So I'm just going to stand over here behind the shortstop. And in case the shortstop makes an error, I'll be there and I'll be the hero. Who cares if they keep hitting in the right field? It's incredible. Matthew 21, 18. Now in the morning when he was returning to the city, he became hungry. Seeing a lone fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, No longer shall there ever be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. Seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, How did the fig tree wither all at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And then verse 22, And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. All things ask in prayer, believing you will receive. Can you get the lights, guys? <clears throat> Yeah.
close in prayer. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for gathering this family of yours together, for sending your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to teach us and show each of us your grace and truth, for he is grace and truth, as your word states unequivocally. Father, how do we fully express our gratitude towards you in time? How do we show you our love in return for all that you've done for us and continue to do? How do we do these things? May we express our love for you by expending our time and energy to do your will. As your word states, you desire all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. We pray our hearts are always pleasing to you. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.